Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. This is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, the audio version. Today is the 26th of January, 2022. Last time, we had just gotten started talking about prenal lipid biosynthesis. Remember, this is all about anabolism. That's why I'm doing these lectures. And uh, let's just proceed with that in account. So as it works out, this cyclopentanophenanthine ring structure, which is basically a fusion of four different hydrocarbon cycles connected together at various carbon atoms, is biosynthesized from acetyl-CoA, much the same um, precursor, of course, that we started with, with uh, fatty acid biosynthesis. So the acetyl-CoA that is synthesized in the cytosol, let's, uh, let's take a cell like an hepatocyte. Um, it's going to be converted uh, to hydroxymethylglutyryl-CoA, which is a six-carbon compound. And the next reaction after that will be a reductase, the G. coli reductase, and it's rather a famous reductase because it is the one that is the target for drugs that are used to limit cholesterologenesis, de novo cholesterologenesis, the so-called statin drugs. That's the target of statin drugs, HMG coli reductase. I gave a few lectures on that, full long, hour long, hour ones, um, probably a little over a year ago. And I can get back to that or I can do some kind of synthesis and summary of that. At any rate, the product of the reductase is mevalonic acid, which then becomes phosphorylated to mevalonate pyrophosphate. And then onward to the next really important structural intermediate called isopentanyl pyrophosphate. That particular structure can then be isomerized to dimethyl allyl pyrophosphate. And then in combination with various, and those are C5 compounds, by the way, various combinations of the two, you will make geraniol pyrophosphate and then farnesyl pyrophosphate. And then onward from pharmaceutical pyrophosphate, which is going to be the major precursor to all of the final prenal lipids that we will talk about. One of them is uh, after an enzyme called transprenal transferase, we'll make geranyl geranyl phosphate, which will then, subsequent reactions later, make ubiquinone, which is all important left on a transport chain, amongst other very significant biosynthetic pathways in humans. But the geranyl geranyl phosphate can also be used to covalently modify polypeptides. And yes, they're called geranyl geranylated proteins. And we'll talk about those too later. Now, the pharmaceutical uh, pyrophosphate can also go through a series of reactions that start with an enzyme called squalene synthase making squalene, a rather unfortunate name, I might think. And then several reactions after that, which basically involve cyclizations and closing of rings, you do make the parent compound cholesterol. 
Another enzyme that will function on phosphate is cisprenyl transferase. It will make dolichol, and dolichol will then be by, uh, phosphorylated, and dolichol pyrophosphate will be that all-important lipid, which will take the carbohydrates that had been linked as nucleotide sugars, these would be the UDP-linked sugars, to make the glycoproteins such as antibodies, cytokines, and chemokines, et cetera. That is, polypeptides have become glycosylated in the endoplasmic reticulum and then through the Golgi apparatus, ultimately making it either into the plasma membrane or be secreted entirely, like the ones I just mentioned. Pharisee pyrophosphate can also serve an enzyme called protein prenyl transferase. And here, just directly, you make farnesylated proteins. Farnesylated proteins and geronylated proteins tend to be really important as receptors in membranes, such as G-protein coupled receptors comes to mind. Okay. And again, we can detail this as much as we want as we go on. So the initial reaction to make the HMG-CoA is to take acetoacetyl-CoA, C4 compound, thioester, and then condense that with acetyl-CoA. Of course, all you're doing there is removing one of the coenzyme A residues, and that's enough free energy to drive the synthesis of 3-hydroxy-3-methylglutyryl-CoA, or HMG-CoA. Okay? That's the, that's the really um, first reaction that commits carbon directly to cholesterologenesis. So once you have HMG-CoA reductase, if you, uh, HMG-CoA, excuse me, and then you catalyze the reaction HMG-CoA reductase, that takes two NADPHs. So there is reductive biosynthesis, aka anabolism, as we're following along in our book, right? And you will make then mevalonic acid. And this mevalonic acid that will be the reduced form of 3-hydroxy-3-methylglutyryl-CoA. Now, <clears throat> that same intermediate, HMG-CoA, can also be converted in the mitochondrion, as opposed to the cytoplasma, which is synthesized mevalonate. In the mitochondrion, you can uh, make acetyl-CoA and acetoacetate. Hence, the acetoacetate will be used. Notice it's not a coaester any longer. That is a ketone body, which of course can be directly used for the source of carbon, not only in any tissue in the periphery, but also so significantly go past the blood-brain barrier and be used, yes, in neurons and glia in the central nervous system as a carbon source. Cetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate are indeed known as the ketone bodies. So during lipolysis and beta-oxidation of fatty acids, you will directly make acetoacetate and you will directly make beta-hydroxybutyrate. So this is the process by which you understand the multi- utilization of HMG-CoA, one for cholesterol genesis, one for ketogenesis, okay? And it all depends on where it's occurring. Ketogenesis in the mitochondrion, that's where the enzyme is for that, and cholesterologenesis in the cytoplasm, where all the enzymes are found.
So this isoprene unit becomes really important. It's a highly unsaturated compound, C5. It has two locations of double bonds on either end of the molecule. So that becomes the building block, you see, for these complex prenal lipids. That's why they're called prenal, because of the isoprene group. In fact, mevalonate, after the hydrolysis of ATP and the phosphate being added directly to it, will make 5-phosphomevalonate. Then the next reaction, on also adding another phosphate from ATP, that ribonucleotide, remember, will make 5-pyrophosphatemevalonate. Now you add another phosphate, and at the same time, subsequently decarboxylate and remove that phosphate. And that's when you make three isopentenyl pyrophosphate, okay? Which, as I just said, is your building block. So dimethylallyl pyrophosphate, which is just a geometrical isomer of isopentenyl pyrophosphate, will combine with isopentenyl pyrophosphate. So you have DMAPP condensing with IPP and PPI is released, which drives the reaction. You'll now make your first 10-carbon prenolipid, geronyl pyrophosphate. Geronyl pyrophosphate will then go on to, again, condense with another molecule of IPP that is isopentenyl pyrophosphate, and that will make your first C15 prenolipid, farnesyl pyrophosphate. Farnesyl pyrophosphate can then condense with another molecule of farnesine pyrophosphate plus NADPH, because it's reductive biosynthesis anabolism, to make that rather unfortunately named cholesterol biosynthetic pre, uh, intermediate squalene. It's also a precursor, squalene. Okay. So two C15s, obviously you're going to have a C30 compound. And squalene is indeed a C30, prenal lipid. Okay. All right. And remember, you used NADPH for that. Now squalene will also react with NADPH and molecular oxygen to make NADP, water, and the squalene epoxide. Now, we're starting to close these rings, right? Now, in acidic conditions, you're going to make something called the protosterol cation, which has a free hydroxyl group. And then losing a proton you will make the next stable intermediate cholesterologenic pathway, lanosterol, lanosterol. Lanosterol will then lose a carbon at the formal oxidation state and also two more at the completely oxidized carbon dioxide state to synthesize, and that's, and then 19 steps will be used to cyclize and to carry out more of the configurations that end up converting lanosterol to cholesterol. That's 19 reactions, that's correct. And you lose three more carbons, right? So remember, you had a, C20, a C30, 
you end up with a uh, C27 for cholesterol, C27, 27 carbons. Now, that whole pathway I just mentioned to you, starting from acetyl-CoA all the way to the biosynthesis cholesterol, was worked out by uh, Conrad Block. Conrad Block is one of the main fathers of lipid biochemistry, just like I talked about Sali Wakil working on the acetylcarboxylase. I want to mention uh, actually my old friend, Conrad Block. Dr. Block um, had worked on this pathway years and years before I had met him. And in fact, he won the Nobel Prize in chemistry for working out the biosynthetic pathway. Block worked out some of these early reactions, actually, when he was a professor at the University of Chicago. Of course, I was a very little kid when he was doing this work, and I certainly didn't know him then. <laughs> um, and um, it was a really interesting um, happenstance that he uh, and I met. Um, I was the um, proctor over a seminar course that I taught at uh, the University of Idaho, as it turns out. And I was allowed to invite outside speakers to give a seminar in our seminar series. We could afford to bring in maybe one or two per semester. So one of the first people I brought in was my old friend. Uh, well, I met him only once before at a lipid meeting, but old friend meeting, I had met him and we had talked about some enzymatic activity that I've been working on, which is the beta hydroxydesinoyl ACP dehydrase. That's how I met him, mostly by uh, telephone conversation, but also once in person before this. I brought him out to Moscow, Idaho, and um, spent a week with him, maybe five days. And he had told me some really interesting stories about his past. And one of them was how he got to study cholesterologenesis rather than what he was going to study, which was phospholipid synthesis. And he told me that he had his uh, major professor at the time, who was uh, himself a pretty famous person. Um, and I could talk about this, I could talk about him later, but right now I'll just leave it at that. He um, unfortunately passed away. And so that, of course, is uh, a really you know bad thing to happen when you are. Uh, a postdoc. I think he was a postdoc at the time. Prior to that, he'd been working on the lipids involved in tuberculosis in Switzerland. This had been in the 1920s, late 1920s, early 1930s. And he left Switzerland and moved to the United States, and that's where he was postdocing. Now, another postdoc at the time in the same laboratory was a guy named Eugene Kennedy. So, Conrad Block and Eugene Kennedy were both postdocs in this guy's laboratory. And when the major professor passed away uh, unexpectedly, um, there were two main projects happening in the laboratory. One was to work out phospholipid biosynthesis, and the other one was to work out isoprene, prenolipid, cholesterol biosynthesis. Those are the two projects that were being funded at the time. So Conrad told me that the only reason he ended up doing 
the cholesterol was that he and Gene Kennedy agreed that one would take one project and one would take the other. And the only um, way to do it that would be absolutely egalitarian would be to flip a coin. And so uh, heads uh, was going to be phospholipid and tails was going to be cholesterol, according to Dr. Block. And um, he got tails. So he got cholesterol biosynthesis. And that's the story. And Eugene Kennedy went on to work on the Kennedy pathway, which was a complete synthesis of phospholipid lipids, including, of course, the biosynthesis of triacylglycerol, the major storage form of depot fat in animals, right? Okay. So that's a story that I was uh, told directly by um, Dr. Block, and I thought you might like to hear it. I don't know if I've mentioned it before in my lectures, but I decided to mention it here. All right. Now, cholesterol itself is usually found in membranes, but it's often esterified to palmitic acid or to some other fatty acid, to the, one of the hydroxyl groups on one of the ring structures. So a very common form of cholesterol is cholesterol palmitoyl ester. Okay. So... In fact, when cholesterol is transported on lipoproteins, either on VLDL, IDL, LDL, or back to the liver via HDL, it's usually in the form of CEs or cholesterol esters. Okay. So now I think you get the whole picture about um, the complexity of lipid metabolism. Not only do you have these two major pathways, cholesterologenesis and fatty acyl biosynthesis, now we've covered both of them, but you have common crosstalk between the two. And of course, this is again a logical synthesis because both lipids end up interacting to make membranes and also, and, and that includes all the endomembranous systems, but vanishingly less cholesterol than glycerin sphingolipids in the interior of the cell, but about 50, 50 mole percent at the plasma membrane of the uh, typical mammalian cell. And so that means a great deal of interaction with the biosynthetic products of those two pathways. So I think you get the idea why I'm bringing this up now, because they're both the anabolic mode, right? And since they're both anabolic, um, it's important for me to uh, give you that detail, right? The fact that you are dealing with two um, pathways that are occurring essentially simultaneously. Because the citrate that is cleaved via ATP citrate lias, remember way back three lectures ago, I discussed this with you. It left the mitochondrion because the mitochondrion had anaplerotically built up with high ratios of NADH to NAD, thus shutting down those dehydrogenases, which turn the TCA cycle. And so that's how that carbon, that acetyl-CoA and the oxalacetic acid, end up coming into the cytoplasm because you have citrate bulk transported out. You have pyruvate coming in, remember that, into the mitochondrion and, and citrate coming out of the mitochondrion. And in so doing that, the ATP citrate lyase will resynthesize that condensation, uh, 
the substrate sport, and that's acetyl-CoA and OAA, remember? And then we talked about the OAA being ultimately converted to malate, be that cytosolic malate dehydrogenase, thus rectifying the problem of NADH buildup because that would generate NAD, and the NAD could then be used by the glycerol three-phosphate, uh, glycerol three-phosphate dehydrogenase in the glycolytic pathway, thus generating pyruvate. But I also told you it was that enzyme, malic enzyme, which would form pyruvate directly, but also would make NADPH, which is used for the two reductive biosynthetic pathways I just discussed, one yesterday and one today. Fatty acid synthesis, number one, and number two, cholesterol genesis. Now, I didn't emphasize all the NADPH that's used in cholesterol genesis, but I did mention it, and the fair amount is. So those are two anabolic pathways working in unison. Now, again, another <clears throat> biological comment there. Why is fatty acid synthesis de novo and cholesterol genesis de novo both working not only at the same time, so temporally they, they are commiserate, but also that they are sequentially interdigitated in their interactions. It is because the biosynthesis of fatty acids, then dense complex lipids like glycerophospholipids and sphingolipids and cholesterol will be absolutely necessary when the cell is getting ready during the cell cycle to go through its S phase. That is its DNA replication phase because you're going to need to lay down new membrane immediately at that time of cell division, mitosis, right? Because you have two cells formed from one. And this again, this has to do with the reproduction of a cell so that you then expand and increase tissue mass, right? cell division, just classical mitosis. And so lipogenesis and DNA metabolism leading to the replication of the genome are also coordinated together. In fact, cholesterol is necessary to amplify the activity, many of the activities of DNA polymerase-mediated replication of the genome. So that's how cholesterol is absolutely important to drive eukaryotic cell division. Sensu stricto, full stop. Now you know why. This has been discovered and it's linked because you need cholesterol, not only because cholesterol is necessary in the membrane, without Cholesterol in the plasma membrane of a mammalian cell, there is no mammalian cell, okay? But also because cholesterol is a precursor, and those intermediates I went through, the dolichol and the ubiquinol, are absolutely vital as well for bioenergetics and for the production of glycoproteins necessary for the full achievement of a new daughter cell after cell division from mitosis, right? That's right, okay. So you can see how lipid metabolism is intimately linked to the, the resynthesis of the genome, that is DNA replication. So it can't be any more vital to the cell. And that's why lipid metabolism is 
so, I believe, underrepresented as a way to fully understand how cells live, how the living system replicates itself. And even for another whole story I could tell you was about meiosis, okay? And how lipids are absolutely so essential there, right? All right. Onward now. We are moving into a different area and we're going to try to finish as much as we can. And we've got some time, okay? So let's see where we are here. Yeah. So the de novo synthesis of the two deoxyribonucleotides from ribonucleotides requires NADPH. Okay. So you have a two prime ribonucleotide, okay? And it has to be used to form a deoxyribonucleotide, all right? So when you have a ribonucleotide that is biphosphorylated, so it's an NDP, it's a nucleotide diphosphate. So it's going to have the ribosugar, it's going to have the nucleotide base, it's going to have two phosphates. That's the level of phosphorylation that we're talking about to make the deoxynucleotide diphosphate. So you have the nucleotide diphosphate, then you synthesize the deoxynucleotide diphosphate. It's the deoxy NDPs, which will then be phosphorylated to the deoxy NTP, triphosphorylated, to be used for nascent DNA synthesis. Something I was just mentioning a few minutes ago, the being dependent upon cholesterol to fire it as an allosteric effector. So how do you get to this point? Well, you need magnesium ions and you need a protein sulfhydryl that becomes oxidized to a disulfide and you need NADPH. (coughs) Excuse me. So NADPH is driving deoxyribonucleotide biosynthesis from ribonucleotides, another anabolic pathway. (coughs) Excuse me. I have one of those fancy machines that shuts that off. I'm very sorry. So some other things that uh, are, uh, and there's a whole lot to talk about that processing of deoxyribonucleotide biosynthesis, a whole lot of really beautiful metabolic regulation of that, but I'm not getting into it because here I'm trying to stick really close to the lecture topic, which is simply reductive biosynthesis, aka anabolism, okay, using NADPH. I just told you NADPH is necessary to make the deoxyribonucleotides. Here's a couple more things. Um, Molecular oxygen can also react with NADPH, making a reactive oxygen intermediate or an ROI, which then can be acted upon by superoxide dismutase to make hydrogen peroxide. Hydrogen peroxide then can react with halide ions via an enzyme called myeloperoxidase to make hypophalous acid, 
Now, let's talk about that for a moment. So you have pathogen and autoantigen opsonized molecular fragments that can become ingested into a lysosome. This is now into phagocytosis and the removal of cellular material, okay? Including pathogens, entire pathogen cells, that is. So the pathogen in an autoantigen oxidized molecular fragments gets ingested into a lysosome. And toll-like receptor signals and, and with processing through the cytokine interferon gamma will give you those phagocyte oxidize, oxidizing enzymes, which will utilize NADPH. Okay. So that's how we're getting at this. NADPH requires that, I mean, the, the phagocyte oxidase enzymes require NADPH to take molecular oxygen and convert it into an ROI. That's a partially <coughs> reduced form, partially reduced form of molecular oxygen. We're calling it a reactive oxygen remediate. Okay. So the phagocytic vacuoles fuse with the lysosome to yield a phagolysosome. You know this from cell biology. The phagolysosome carries out this oxidative degradation of any captured molecular species. So the oxidative enzyme transcription is itself increased by interferon gamma which are produced by, is produced by T cells in response to an inflammatory response via the activation of an innate cell lineage toll-like receptor processing. And so that signals the engagement then between the T cell and the antigen presenting cell, right? So reactive oxygen species will oxidize nucleic acids, proteins, and lipids, the products often are released in extracellular space, and many things 